the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Welcome along to Enter Sad Men and Enter Sad Men special, no less. My name's Steve, and I'm joined as ever by my colleagues, um, Richard and Mark. Evening, gentlemen. Hello. Evening. Hello, hello. Good to see you. Entersadmen.co.uk, by the way, if you want to know a little bit more about the three of us, the show, what we normally get up to. But as I say, this isn't a normal show. This is a special because we have a guest. Now then, pod regulars will know that, well, Mark Richard and I do like to natter. And having spent the day editing one of our shows, I do sometimes wonder if we don't natter a little bit too much. Um, but, but our guest tonight is a, is a professional natterer, if that's a word. He gasses for a living. And it's our great pleasure to welcome the voice of Sky Sports F1 coverage, uh, one of the voices of Sky Sports darts coverage. He's that and much, much more, but crucially, critically, for the purposes of Enter Sad Men, he is a signed-up member of the Hard Rock and Heavy Metal Brotherhood. Mr. David Croft, sir, how are you? I'm very good. Good evening. How are you? Yeah, we're all very well, mate. We're all very well. We're delighted We're delighted to have your company. I would say see you, but the joys of, uh, the, the joys of virtual... Um, meetings these days, you, you've gone blank, but I know you're there, and uh, we're yep. looking forward to. Um, it, the pleasure's all out. We're looking forward to. It, it, to it's uh, one of the best bits about being a Formula One commentator. To be fair, that I'm I'm rarely seen uh, and often heard. I, I think that's probably the right way. To be fair, uh, Mark, who you may or may not know, used to employ me once upon a time. Uh, always said, "Great face for radio," and um, <laughs> I, I, I had no reason to disagree with any of that. He was way more experienced than me. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what, I'm sure those dulcet tones have, uh, have alerted a few people out there to, uh, to days out in Spa and Monaco and Zandvoort or wherever else you work from. So I'm sure a lot of people are delighted to hear you on our pod. We certainly are. Um, now, you and I can spend the next half hour or so chewing the fat over darts. I know Mark, well, you know that he's a petrol head. I'm sure he could talk F1 with you till the cows come home. But we want to know about um, you and your, and your hard rock and heavy metal journey. So kick off with the sort of the whys, the the whens, the, the wherefores, and any embarrassing first records, then don't mention them, just lie. But, um, yeah, when did it all start? Okay, well, well, the first record I ever got, uh, not an embarrassment at all, uh, was Christmas 76, and it had been out nearly a year by that stage, and that was Queen's A Night at the Opera, which we'll get on to uh, in a little while. Um, I, rem- I, I remember getting it for Christmas because uh, it actually had a Queen's A Day at the Races inside, so we had to wait until the record shop reopened so I could actually go and hear the record uh, that I wanted to. But I was I, I was always a big music fan. Um, did, I, did I like my hard rock when I was just a six-year-old kid? Probably not. I, I was... Uh, I remember bopping around the living room to mud tiger feet at a very uh, young age, um, but but the rock the rock appreciation grew. Albeit, I, I, I left it for a few years because it wasn't very hip, trendy, cool, or otherwise to to be uh, to be a fan of hard rock. So I, I, I dabbled with a bit of soul and R and B at kind of the age of fourteen, fifteen, and then realised that was an absolutely stupid idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and got back into rock uh, when a, a guy I used to babysit for, he um, went on to become a vicar, uh, said to me, Deep Purple are playing at Nebworth. You really should uh, come and see them. I said, oh, I don't like Deep Purple. Yeah. What have they ever done? So he played me Child in Time. And okay, right, that, that's not a bad track. Um, anything else? And he played Smoke on the Water and a few more. And I, I agreed to, to go along with him. Um, I, I was born and raised in Stevenage. So Nebworth was the spiritual home when it, when it came to music festivals. I don't know if you remember that 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 year, the return return of the Nebworth Fair. 
it didn't stop raining for about a week beforehand. Rain consistently throughout the gig until Purple came on stage. Uh, and then for good measure, rain for about three or four days afterwards as well. It, it was like the Somme uh, in Nebworth Park. And, and I kind of entered this world of, uh, of, of, of big, aggressive-looking men covered in mud and throwing bottles filled with God knows what at each other, and at Meatloaf, who was playing that day and didn't do the best set in the world. Um, he, he had broken limbs and, and wasn't dodging the bottles very well either. Um, but it was it was an amazing gig. Scorpions played, Blackfoot played, Mama's Boys, uh, UFO, uh, were all on the bill as well. And, and Purple came on stage, and I wouldn't say it was the greatest Purple concert um, in the world, and, and it's took a while for, for Richie Blackmore and Ian Gillen to, to really find their way again as, as, as the Mark II Deep Purple, the Deep Purple really, um, kind of reunited and, and went on that Perfect Strangers tour. But by the end of it, I was a complete convert and, and I absolutely loved the feeling of, of being in that crowd. A, a bit like the first time you go to, to a football match, you either get it or you don't. And, and, I, and I've always got live sport and being part of that live crowd. So that was kind of where my my love of, of hard rock really took off from, uh, for, from that moment. Deep Purple, 1985, 15-year-old boy in the pouring rain at Nebworth. But Mark's, Mark's nodding and, and I'm guessing Mark's a Nebworth boy, a genuine Nebworth boy. I presume you were there, yes, Mark. He and he's also far, far older than well, you. Well. He'll, he'll, he'll have got in legally and everything. So. He might have bought a ticket. Was, yeah, well, no. Now you see, now this is how, how the years have changed us because um, – that day, I got into Nebworth on a press pass because I was working for the Stevens Gazette. Ah. And, um, yeah, so I watched it from a very dry platform at the side, left-hand side of the stage as you as you look at it. Of course, now, um, now all of the backstage passes are coming your way, Crofty, not mine. But... Um, for for everything, I should think. But yeah, I, to, to be fair, mate, I did get I did get a backstage pass and free press tickets to the last Sonosphere uh, at Nebworth, or the the last one I could get to when uh, Lincoln Park played. Well, well, yeah, well, Steve and I did that. We you went did. to because uh, I I abused my position at the BBC <laughs> and uh, got free passes for that um, when Metallica played. That was a night we can. I, I tell yeah. Not here, but we saw some sights that night, didn't we, Steve? We saw some sights of that show that night. But um, I, this is why you do what you do, because I had completely forgotten that it pissed down with rain at that show. But you're right. I remember now interviewing a bedraggled Phil Mogg from UFO, because mm. I had to do some interviews to justify the ticket. And he, he honestly he looked like a drenched whippet. It was um, it was horrendous. <laughs> but I'd, I've always remembered it as being really sunny. So oh, no. thanks, sir. No, it, it was awful. You mentioned Metallica at Sonosphere. That just jogged my memory. Um, I'm getting to that stage in my life where my, my brain does need jogging, <coughs> excuse me, from time to time. Um, 2014, uh, Metallica played Nebworth, and I got press passes that day as well. Um, that was British Grand Prix Day. Uh, Kimi Raikkonen um, crashed on the first lap, brought out the red flag while they mended the arm coat. Took about an hour and, hour and a bit to mend the arm co. I'm stood in the commentary box with Martin Brundle uh, and on talkback, uh, I'm busy telling him that they better get a move on because I've got tickets for Metallica and I'm not missing the gig uh, later on in the evening. We, we, we finished the race. We finished our, um, our work at Silverstone. I actually managed to get from Silverstone back to Potton where I was living at the time, uh, which is in Bedfordshire. So a trip of about 35 miles, well, about 30 miles, get changed, 
get out the house, get down to Nebworth, park the car, get to, into the field, get myself a pint of beer, get into place, and just as I got into place, Metallica took to the stage. It, the timing could not have been any better. What a gig that was. So after your, um, so after, after your first Nebworth then, Crofty, what, what, where did we go musically? What, what, what sort of genres, what sort of breeds of, of hard rock and metal did you wander down? Oh, what sort of breeze did I wander down? Well, like like every every one of that era, I wandered down the Iron Maiden path um, quite substantially. Was a big Maiden fan, uh, very much in, into Purple as well. Loved Wasp. Was a big Wasp fan, and, and a, a band I, I think actually have got better uh, as the years have gone on. Um, liked Anthrax, uh, liked Metallica. Uh, was very much into Guns and Roses, and and just. Um, when I was about, oh, I'm trying to think now, when I was about 20 or so, so this would have been around about 1990, 91, very much started getting into Bruce Springsteen. Uh, and as you'll see from my choices, Springsteen features quite heavily, not just in, in my musical choices, but, but my influences as well. And, and I've become, I'm, I'm probably a bit too much of a Springsteen fan, uh, bearing in mind that of the four books I got for Christmas, three of them were Springsteen um, influenced. Um, to be honest, uh, you know, my other half, Laura, knows exactly what I like. And reading about Bruce Springsteen is very much one of them. I, I am a massive fan of The Boss. So if you like Springsteen, Thank you for reviewing uh, Born to Run in the next podcast. And if you don't, I'm really sorry that you've had to listen to it. Actually, I'm not, because everyone should at some stage in their life. <laughs> well, listen, I've got, I've got to confess, I, 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 I'm not going to say I don't get Bruce. I, I just never kind of listen to it. So it'll be, it'll be, it'll be a new thing. But Dave Clark from Sky Sports, he's another massive boss fan. And I bet you yes. chatted days away, didn't you, uh, Dave Clark... Uh, Love Dave Clark and was so chuffed when he, he rang me up a while back to say that he actually went to see Springsteen on Broadway. He, he, he managed to get a ticket uh, wow. to, to go and see Springsteen on Broadway, which is uh, uh, I, I would have given my right arm uh, for that ticket, which is a good job. I'm left handed, really. Um, but it, it's, it's funny you say, you know, it's not that I don't get Bruce Springsteen. I've just never really listened to him. And, and I just I just want to say, for the record, anyone who says I don't get Bruce Springsteen um, has no soul and, and quite, <laughs> frank, quite, quite frankly doesn't know what they're talking about. Um, the, the man has released <laughs> the man has released and recorded over three hundred and forty different tracks uh, in his career. Surely, in that back catalogue, there's something that everyone should like. And I. I don't see him. I don't see it as a rock or a hard rock experience. It's a it's a evangelical experience. I think going to see Bruce Springsteen. I, I think he brings a, a passion and and he brings a sound that that no one else does. And, and and so many different types of music, so many different genres go into Bruce Springsteen tracks. That there, there is literally something for everybody in there, should you so wish. And and to see the amount of stars that over the years have queued up to play with him, I think speaks volumes for the esteem that he's held amongst his peers and those that could only dream of being on that level. Right, well, you've shamed me. You've Do you think? Me. Um, <laughs> I know what I'm doing the next week, <laughs> and then I'll drop you an email and tell you how I go on. Have you, I take it you've seen him. I've seen Springsteen on many an occasion. It was at '92 was the first time I saw him uh, on the on the Lucky Town tour. My uncle uh, took me to see him in, in Sheffield, actually, um, and we went to see that. I've, I've seen him uh, at Wembley many times. Uh, I've seen him in Barcelona 
in 2016 at the new Camp in Barcelona, uh, where he, he just happened to be playing at the new Camp um, on the Saturday night at the Spanish Grand Prix. Um, <laughs> so at our hotel, believe it or not, was a five-minute walk from the new Camp. So I, um, I managed to get some tickets. Um, and paid for the tickets as well. Uh, but I, I did actually phone a contact up uh, to, to help me get the tickets and um, and went to see it. Now, look, it, it, this is one of my, my, my best gigs of all time. Um, Barcelona had just won uh, the league, uh, La Liga. So the Barcelona fans were in fine voice before Bruce took to the stage. He came on stage at about half past nine uh, on the Saturday night. He left the stage at a quarter to one on that Saturday night. I vowed, as I had a really important commentary the next day uh, to, to perform for Sky Sports, that I wouldn't sing a single note. And I, I'd, I'd just, you know, bop away as I usually do. But uh, I'd, I'd refrain from singing. Absolute impossibility. The minute Badlands started, that was me uh, cheering and singing away. And I did for three and a half hours. And um, woke up the next morning. I had no voice whatsoever. I was, as, I was as croaky as they come. And it was the race. Do you, do you remember when Lewis Hamilton and Nico Rosberg crashed into each other on uh, the third corner of the first lap? One, yes. of, one of the defining moments of their rivalry as teammates. Well, that was the race um, after the Bruce Springsteen concert. And I'm glad that crash happened on the first lap because I'm not sure I could have coped with it uh, 10 laps in. Uh, in fact, Martin Brundle said to me halfway through the race, <laughs> we were commentating away, and he's like, are you okay today? Your voice seems a bit croaky. I said, oh, no, I was just, I was just <laughs> singing a bit last night, doing some karaoke with Bruce Springsteen. Oh, just you. Well, me and 80,000 others in, in the new camp, mate, <laughs> to be fair. Um, it's thoroughly unprofessional, but what a gig that was. Um, it was just after Prince had died, and he played um, – played Purple Rain and it was the second best uh, second best rendition of Purple Rain I've ever seen live the, the best being Prince playing it at the halftime show in um, in Miami at the Super Bowl when I, 2007 when I was lucky enough to go and, uh, be able to commentate on the Super Bowl for Five Live and uh, Prince did the halftime show my lord was that a show and a half 15 minutes of unadulterated joy that was <laughs> Well, your passion, your your passion for the boss is um, is, is is powering through. Anyway, that's that's an absolute certainty. Are you have you got kindred spirits in the um, in the F1 gantry? Are there, are there many rock fans in there? Or? Um, amongst the Sky team, uh, Martin Martin Brundle is a Deep Purple fan. Uh, I don't think I'm giving away any secrets uh, when yeah. I say that his ringtone is "Smoke on the Water." Uh, which, which always makes me laugh. Um, Johnny Herbert likes his rock. Damon Hill obviously played guitar on yeah, um, yeah. on a platinum-selling record on a Def Leppard record. That's um, right. The, the, do you know what? I'm going to have to Google that in a minute because I, I keep forgetting the name of it. But he, he tells me it was a, a brilliant guitar solo to end the track. Um, there was a few of them. There were a few of them doing it. One. There was it. It wasn't just him, was it? Well, Ed, Eddie Jordan likes playing his drums. DC ah, reckons right. he, he can sing a little yeah, bit yeah. as well. Um, but no, the, the rest of the Sky Sports fraternity, um, Ant Davidson and Paul DeResta, cannot stand uh, my music. So I tend okay. to treat them, I, to, to hype myself up before a commentary, I, I tend to, to treat myself and the boys to a bit of Parkway Drive or a bit of Slayer. Um, <laughs> you know, just just, just, just some, something to, to, to get, yeah, you know, yeah. bring, me, bring me the horizon, you know, something a little more up to date. Um, Danny Rick is obviously, Daniel Ricardo is a big uh, rock fan. And, um, you know, we share a passion for uh, for Parkway Drive. 
Gaslight Anthem, uh, and also for Rise Against, uh, who I think are a sensational band who just can't stop making good music at the moment. I think it's a petrol head thing because Speedway's the same. They all yeah. seem to be. They all seem to be rockers. Down at Paul Pirates, they're all rockers. Uh, what about Lewis Hamilton? He's not a Pantera fan, is it? Surely. Uh, Lewis Hamilton, Pantera fan, no. But Lewis okay. Hamilton's karaoke record of choice. Come on, I'll put this out to the group here. You can all have a guess, right? Classic, <laughs> classic yeah. rock track. What is Lewis Hamilton's karaoke record of choice? Oh, it's got to be We Are The Champions. We Are The Champions. No, no, that would be far too self-indulgent. Go on, Rich. You go next. What could it be? What could it be? Ace of Spades. Ace of Spades. Can you imagine <laughs> Lewis Hamilton doing Ace of Spades? Wouldn't that be good? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for the serious, the serious guess and say living on a prayer. See, you're, I think you're probably about the closest there, uh, Mark. Um, don't stop believing. Uh, of course it is. Yeah. Of course it is. <laughs> don't stop believing is Lewis Hamilton's karaoke record of choice. He he actually revealed that at a um, at a press conference once that I was uh, that I was at. <laughs> that 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 he'd been singing. It was just after he won the championship, and he um, he revealed that that was his record of choice. Which obviously meant uh, that I had to ask the supplementary question: What are you then? Are you just a small town girl living in a lonely world, or are you a city <laughs> boy born and raised in South Detroit? And uh, he wasn't quite sure which one of those to answer. To be fair, <laughs> you see, uh, that's a real shame because just for just for a fleeting moment there, I had a, a, a mental image of you and Lewis in the nags head, with some ropey band behind you, both doing. <laughs> A karaoke special, but no, no, it was. A, yeah. I have though, I have though sung "Living on a Prayer" with Nico Rosberg at the <laughs> uh, at the Mercedes Christmas party once. <laughs> and how many people were there? That's brilliant. Well, and and there was an audience there um, to to see it as well. They um, one of the Mercedes Christmas parties, brilliant, and I, I get asked to host it um, when they're allowed to have them. And they, they get a, a, the Rocky Oki uh, rock band in to uh, to stand up on stage. And you can actually be on the stage as a rock singer. And in your in our drunken state that night, we all think we're rock singers. So I invited Nico up with me and we uh, we did sing Living on a Prayer together. Must have been painful. <laughs> it, it was for him. <laughs> <laughs> and we go back to when, when you really got, you know, inducted into this whole genre of music after Deep Purple. Can you remember... The first, the first album of the albums you went actually went out and bought and thought, right, you know, I'm going to you know, invest some of my own money in this and, and really, really start to get into it. Appetite for destruction. Uh, I, I remember cycling down to, to the Stevenage Town Centre. Um, so so I, I lived in Martin's Wood in Stevenage, which was um, which was one of the more plush areas. You know, we actually had hot and cold running water, and um, I used to cycle down to the town and. Yeah pick up the album and then try and cycle back again, which was never the easiest thing to do, cycling up a, a, a bloody big hill uh, on my bike at the time. But I remember I remember buying Appetite for Destruction and driving the neighbours absolutely bat crazy. I hope you bought it from F.L. Moore. Oh, thank you. F.L. Moore's, of course. Not only did you, you, you bought your concert tickets from F.L. Moore's as well, and, um, and and all your records. Oh, absolutely. You, 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 there, were, there were two record shops in Stevenage. There was FL Moore's, and then a few years later, Ripple Records in the old town. 
Um, That's right. In a in a tiny little thing above Middle Row, wasn't it? Absolutely. And it was run yeah. by a guy called Chris, who was absolute legend. And he introduced me to a lot of really good music. Um, round about the time I actually started uh, working on hospital radio and um, working on hospital, volunteering on hospital radio and, and starting out on this long adventure that, that, that's taken me into fire, into F1 eventually. But Chris, um, he introduced me to Warren Zevon, a big Warren Zevon fan, and, and Jackson Brown and, and, and guys like that. Um, he, he, music shops where, where, where the guy behind the counter had more knowledge than you so if you said something that you know you're after this or you're after that, you couldn't quite remember it. They would come up with the answer in the days before the internet, and I miss those sort of days. You know, it's actually why it's it's lovely to be on this podcast to be to be talking to people who share an affinity for the music you love as well. And um, we don't get a chance to do that as often as we used to. It's sad, isn't it? I, one of the greatest things I think is going into a record shop like. Ripple Records, and Chris, I can't remember his wife's name, but she was exactly the same, had exactly the same passion for it all. Mm. And just just rippling through, you know, going through records in oh. a record rack, it's, it's just we've lost – there's a whole generation who who will never experience that that sort of, you know, joy. Well, I, I say that. Rich has never experienced the joy of finding a record and buying it on the basis of the cover alone anyway. But <laughs> he's, he's at one, apparently. But um, – <laughs> Which but, one was that? But you know, there's a whole generation that will never have that joy. Rich, which which was that album? Oh, I can't say yet because I've got to save it for the next episode. Apparently. Ah, right, okay. Oh, I, I, t- I will be giving it away. You're just trying to entice <laughs> me to listen a bit more now, and, and I shout you just for that. But Mark's right. You can flick through Spotify, and you can th- flick through Apple Music, and trust me, I do. And I. I the 10 quid a month I pay for my Spotify premier, premier membership is 10 quid a month well spent, but it is never the same as, as, as thumbing through albums and CDs and, and just browsing in a record store. There's a record shop that I go to every time I'm in Austin. Uh, in, and I love Austin. It's, it's one of my favorite places in the world to visit, whether F1's on or not. Um, there's a record shop called Waterloo Records where they just encourage you to stand around and listen to music. And they've got so many headphones set up uh, to do that. And, and you, you just discover things that you would never normally discover unless you devote three or so hours of, of, of your Monday afternoon to go along and, and just, just discover something different. And, and, you know, it, it worries me a little bit, you know, in terms of, of the future consumption of music. We, we have we have so many radio stations now and so many ways to consume music. But where are the shows that give you, where are the radio shows that give you something different, something that, that is, is a discovery? And I'm Steve, Mark, you know, Rich, I'm sure you were the same growing up. Um, Tommy Vance on a Friday night. Alan Freeman on Capital uh, on a Monday with a Monday Night Rock show. Um, Bob Harris on, on Radio 1 and, and GLR and, and, and Virgin as well when it, when it first uh, – uh, not Virgin, sorry uh, – on, on Radio uh, 2 uh, in his latter time with the BBC. Um, Roger Scott on a Saturday afternoon. Kenny Everett, who would play some amazing stuff on Capital uh, on a Saturday lunchtime and was responsible for Bohemian Rhapsody, for God's sake. You know, that, that record would never have made it without Kenny Everett's um, input and, and, and the fact that he played it on the station. Where are those shows now um, playing something a little bit different that isn't 
300 hits from the last 20 years that get played on a rotational basis and they're called a better music mix. I, I, I do worry for the state uh, of music because there's so much great new music out there and, and it's not being played enough so that the likes of 15-year-old me could discover something new. You know, now you, you fall upon it by chance or you hear it on a, on, a, on a game on your PlayStation or your Xbox or you hear it through the TV. That, that's the way to discover new music, it seems. This sounds like a, this sounds like a conversation Joe Elliott would have had about 40 years ago, which is why he wanted to bug out to America, wasn't it? But... <laughs> Joe Elliott with that wonderful, you know, American sound of West Yorkshire or South Yorkshire. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. yeah. you know, so how, how does anyone these days go about listening to rock music? Well, you can listen to, to Planet Rock. No, thank you. Um I I had a meeting once at, at Planet Rock and they, they they were proudly saying that they cut the playlist down from three and a half thousand tunes to about four hundred. And I said, Well, why are you proud of that? That's you're just narrowing you're narrowing yeah. what, what you're playing and, and it means I'm gonna be subjected to, to radar love, you know, seven times a week rather than, you know, once a year, which is about the limit of, of what I want to hear from that track. You've got absolute classic rock, but that's in the same mould as, as as Planet Rock. Um, you've got, you know, Kerrang Radio, but I don't think you can get Kerrang Radio nationwide. And I'm not, I'm not sure you can on, on the DAB. And um, I listen to, to to a radio station called Primordial Radio, which uh, are the guys that used to be on Team Rock Radio, uh, which was a DAB station, was part of the classic rock, um, metal hammer, uh, prog rock stable. You know, the, the the station was set up to help sell the magazines, but when that folded. Um, the, the, the guys that were doing the daytime stuff got together to, to set up their own radio station, a primordial radio is an internet station. Um, you pay 60 quid a year and, and the musical playlist is, is absolutely unparalleled as, as far as I'm concerned. Nobody plays the music that, that primordial radio play. And that is everything from don't stop believing by journey right up to extreme metal core and, 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 and every genre in between. Now, that's, that suits me down to the ground because I, I, I will listen to anything as long as it's good. And, and, and sometimes I want a, a rock ballad. Sometimes I want something a bit heavier. But for 60 quid a year, I, 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 I will get everything I need within that station. And, and honestly, if you, if you have a love of uh, rock and heavy metal, Primordial is the station out there that is doing it. And it's not for profit. Um, obviously, you know, it pays the DJs, but it is set up by the fans for the fans. They have an AGM, uh, which sadly has had to be cancelled this year uh, because of COVID, which is a real shame because Skindred uh, were meant to be playing and Skindred are, are one of the bands that I absolutely adore. Um, I don't know if you're into it, but rag and metal sounds wrong, but it is so right when, when, <laughs> when you hear what, what, what the, they come up with. Um, you know, and they're a great bunch of guys as well. And they, they were playing the AGM this year for a station that, that had no listeners when it first set up has, has now, you know, got a few thousands dedicated uh, listeners and is expanding all the time. So, so I, I give Primordial a, a, a look in. If you haven't already, you get three months um, uh, free if, if you uh, go on their website because because they are at least playing something a little bit different and new music as well. There's an hour a day weekdays of pure new music with bands that are also unsigned bands as well. And, and, and that's got to be encouraged at this, this day and age. Yeah, absolutely echo that. Yeah, I have to I have to ask my son if I want any uh, any new music. I just have to go to my twenty five year old son, and he, he comes up with the goods, which is 
which is pathetic, but that's where we are, unfortunately. No, it's, um, not, it's not where we are. We should be helping our children well, find that sort of music because I bet you your dad never did that to you when you were younger, so we need to buck the trend here. You know? Well, absolutely, agree more. And, we, and me and my son Ben, we had a we had a superb trade off two years ago when, within two weeks of each other, I'd taken him to see Kiss, and he'd taken me to see Leprous, and, and oh, we, were, we, we were both happy as Larry. I mean, we'd entered each other's realms, and, and we couldn't Love have it. been happier. You know, so that kind of I, that kind of goes all the time. Now then, what about bands bands you've not seen, Crofty? You'd like to see, or or you never will see, or bands you yeah. having never seen. Right, so ba- bands I've not seen, Van Halen. The, the closest I came to seeing Van Halen was seeing David Lee Roth at Monsters of Rock, yeah. the year where he shouted to the crowd that he'd forgotten the words to jump, um, which tickled me at the time. Uh, never seen Van Halen. Trying to think now. Saw Motorhead. Saw Motorhead, Mark, when I played Hatfield, the forum at Hatfield uh, many years mm-hmm. ago. What, what a night that was. Um, never saw ACDC uh, with... Uh, with Bon Scott, which I would love to do. That would have been the ACDC gig that I really wanted to get to. Didn't see the Sex Pistols. Would love to have seen the Sex Pistols, but, you know, they only only did six gigs in this country, so that was never going to happen. I've not seen Van Morrison live. I'd like to see Van Morrison live. I really would. I got to see Queen with Freddie Mercury. um, Okay. Yeah, at at Nebworth. Once once again, last last ever gig with Freddie. Um, little did we all know when they left the stage and, and John Deacon smashed his bass guitar into the amps that that was the end of Queen, um, as, as we know it. And I, and I won't go and see Queen now because it's not Queen, is it? It's, it's a Queen tribute band. It's not the same thing at all. But I would, I would say Van Halen. I've seen Kiss, but I'm not a huge Kiss fan, to be fair. Um, saw Kiss at Donington. They, they were okay, but, uh, but not brilliant. And of the new bands, I've not seen Parkway Drive live yet. Um, I, I was going to go and see Parkway Drive and then something came up and, uh, and I couldn't get to the gig. I really want to go and see Parkway Drive because I, I, it's funny, isn't it, how a band can, can just trim down the intensity but still make really heavy music. And I don't know if you guys are into Parkway Drive or not, but I, I think some of the stuff they've come up with in, in recent years is, is absolute high class. Well, I think you're doing exactly what what uh, we've just been talking about. You're giving us a list of bands that we're now going to go away and listen to. I yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And also, Crofty, we're, we're going to have to talk about your um, your top 10 albums that we contractually asked you to do. But before we, <laughs> before we do that, and, and Mark and Richard's face is going to glaze over now, darts, darts, <laughs> warfare. I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure you've been. I'm sure you've been asked this, but if you haven't, think about it. Because anyone who doesn't know, all the darts players, they come on and they come on with music. They have their own walk-on music. And I've been playing darts for donkey's years. And when I used to play darts, we always used to talk about oh, the, the tracks we'd come on to, the tracks we'd come on to. Would it be sort of jump or fight fire with fire, or whatever? And there are some quite good ones. The boys won't know that Mervyn King comes out to King of Kings by Motorhead. He does. Tremendous, you know, pumping out the the, um, the speakers. Wesley Harms, I think, comes out of some Bon Jovi nonsense. I forget which one. So you must have been asked before, and that's given. If you haven't, then that's given you time to think. Not too crafty. You see, the the thing about dance walk-ons, yeah, is that you, you it's got to be something that gets the crowd going, and that doesn't mean that's that delicious. just by just by putting on something a little bit heavy, that's not necessarily yeah. going to get the crowd going. Um, Agreed. <laughs> it's it. Uh, Peter Wright, the, the former world champion, is, is a point in question here. Peter Wright is a very placid, calm, yeah. um, almost dour 
to the point of, of, of Dower with a, a, a smirk on his face kind of guy. But he comes on to this wonderful track that gets everybody out of their seats and, yeah. and, and, and he dances across the stage and it pumps him up and that's the way it should be. And Daryl Gurney um, still comes out to, to, to Sweet Caroline by Neil Diamond, although yeah, the, yeah. the bit, bit where everyone's touching hands has, has, of course, been banned under COVID times and we're not allowed to do that anymore. But he just, you've, you've got to find the right one. And I don't know what my walk on music would be. <laughs> I really don't because, right, so I've agonised over my top 10 albums and I've, I spent two weeks thinking, right, what really are my top 10 albums here? It would probably take me two years to find the right um, darts track because I mean, the, the correct answer is DJ Oatsy and Hey Baby um, because that's what, you know, darts fans <laughs> love that sort of thing. But I don't, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, I'd like to come out. I'd like to come out to my favourite song of all time. But I don't think that three and a half thousand drunk dance fans would appreciate Thunder Road at that particular time of the night. It's true, isn't it? Because what was? Because sometimes they put on. I mean, you can't believe what was the one they put on. The Will Griggs on Fire, whatever that song is actually called. That was that was about three years ago, wasn't it? When everyone came out to it, it was a sort of standby piece of music yes. and you can see in the place, I've forgotten what the song is it's, it's not Will Griggs on fire obviously but you know the song The Room um, the room, the room is on fire that one something like no? that yeah and, and I remember and that's it and Zoran Lurchbacker because it was the kind of standby wasn't it for players who didn't have their own walk on music and Zoran Lurchbacker this quiet mild mannered middle aged Austrian who obviously couldn't come onto some sort of Tyrolean wedding music <laughs> he came onto that and he got onto the stage, and you just thought he'd died and gone to heaven. He was just looking out at the crowd. This music absolutely pumping. You boys, I know you've glazed over and you've gone, but you've got to come to the darts because yeah. you would love it. What were we talking about? <laughs> Walk on music, Mark. And there was, there was many years ago uh, when I was commentating for, for the BBC at Frimley Green in the Women's World Championship. There was. Um, there was a lady that came over from Australia and we hadn't seen her play. And we had no idea what her walk-on music was. And um, she was, she was quite a large lady. It has to be said and, and, and of advancing years. And um, I'm in the commentary box uh, waiting for the match to start. And obviously the walk-on music starts. <laughs> she stands there spotlighted whilst the opening strands of what's that coming over the hill? Is it a monster? Start playing. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, it took me a leg and a half to compose myself on that one. Because <laughs> when you get it wrong, you get it really wrong, and, and you should never get it that wrong. That is true. That is true. I mean, surely a whole lot of Rosie would have been the one. <laughs> Too obvious, yeah. but very good. <laughs> I'll tell you one thing, and probably worth a little diversion. One of the things that we've been talking about over the last 10 months, however long it is, that we've been doing this crazy thing is what a shit job some bands do of cover versions so um what are the best what's what's the best have you got a kind of a favorite cover in, um, you know, in your arsenal oh right well yeah I, I'm, I was a bit late to the party on this one um but a few years ago at the kennedy um honors um gala uh, which I don't know if you know what, about Kennedy Center Honors Night. It, it's the American president, it was Barack Obama at the time, honors um, uh, those in, in film and, and television, theater and music as well. And Led Zeppelin were, were being honored. And um, they have a whole lot of bands come on um, and do some, some Led Zeppelin covers. 
And then Nancy and Ann Wilson walk on right at the end and they do a cover of Stairway to Heaven. Now, that's ambitious. Yeah, um, <laughs> there are there are covers of Stairway to Heaven out there that are very good. Um, but this this was just something else. And I, I, I don't want to spoil it, but it's so good. Robert Plant has a tear in his eye at the end and he's not crying because he doesn't like it. He is just totally gobsmacked with the way that that Hart cover one of the greatest pieces of music uh, ever. Um, Jason Bonham's on the drums as well, which I think is, is a really nice touch. And, you know, you, you can... One of the things I loved about Barack Obama, he was just... Not only was he a very good president, but he was also really cool as well. And he obviously loves Led Zeppelin. And he's loving the moment. He's completely lost in the moment. And and John Paul Jones and, and, and Jimmy Page and Robert Plant are lost in the moment. And there's a tear in Robert Plant's eye. And it is just a stunning version um, of that song. Uh, so if, if you get the chance, it is on Spotify. If you just um, if you just uh, chuck in heart and, um, and stairway to heaven, have a listen. It's stunning. You're listening to the Enter Sad Men podcast. We're talking loud. We should get into your top 10 then. Um, do you just want to take us through it? I mean, you don't have to. I don't know if they're in order or you want to do a countdown, but but just a, a few words around, you know, why they're there, why you chose them, any sort of some of your own listening, emotional history, your connection to them. Just, just however you want to do it. Oh right. Um, so th- th- you realise that you could now go away and have a kit for an hour and come back and I'd probably <laughs> be on about number seven. <laughs> Um, well, look, I, I want your thoughts on on these albums as well. Um, just just to say, um, "Bat Out of Hell" w- was very close to getting on the top ten. Um, I, I remember the first time I heard that, a friend of mine, Scott Ransom, his brother, uh, brought it home and, and played it, and and I thought even at the age of seven, it was it was quite an album. Uh, and I'm a big fan of Jim Steinman and, and just the pomposity of some of the stuff he comes out with. Uh, Counting Crows, August and Everything After, very nearly made it. It's just an, a, a stunningly good album for the right time of day. Uh, and The Wild, The Innocent, The East Street Shuffle, um, uh, Springsteen's uh, second album, that that very nearly made it because the closing three tracks on it are just, are just something else. Uh, but th- this is my top 10. I'll, I'll leave the top three. Uh, because there is a definite top three, but the rest uh, you can argue as to where they should be on ten down to down to four. So we'll start with "Lost in the Dream" uh, by the War on Drugs, and I, I don't know if you guys are War on Drugs fans uh, whatsoever, but this is this is an album that took about two years uh, to make. Um, Adam uh, Grand Granduchiel, I think is how you pronounce uh, his name. He, he's, he's not got the best voice in the world, and that just makes this album better. It was recorded at a time he'd come back from touring after they, they released Slave Ambient, which is a very good album, um, and they toured extensively. And, and I can really relate to this. Um, and, and he came back to the peace and the quiet of his house and didn't really know how to cope with it. And, and there are times I'll, I'll get back from a Grand Prix and it will take me a couple of days to get over the intensity of what we've been doing over the weekend. Uh, now, I've not been touring for, for nine months nonstop. You know, we get a week off in between from time to time. And he, he just was in a state of depression. And it's an album that, that basically he doesn't try and answer why – he's depressed or how he's going to get out of it. He just says that this is how I'm feeling at the moment. And there are some tracks on, on here that are just, um, just unbelievably good. 
is, is, is the only way I can, can say it. Um, Under the Pressure, uh, the opening track, Red Eyes, is, is, is a really buoyant track. Um, but, you know, underneath it all is, is, is a man that is really suffering. Uh, Eyes to the Wind uh, is, is one of those tracks that could go on for 15 years and it still wouldn't go on long enough for me. The, the melody in that, with the saxophone, the way it comes in, it just... A lot of these songs build into a climax and, and I really love the way this album starts starts small and builds and builds and builds. Lost in the Dream is another one, Burning. Um, if Burning is not the twin brother to Springsteen's Dancing in the Dark, they definitely had a beer in a bar once upon a time and got on with each other famously. Um, <laughs> suffering is really downbeat. I, I just, I, I absolutely adore this album and, and I put it on when I just need a little bit of... I need to sit and think about and, and let music wash over me and just think about sunny days under big blue skies, if that makes sense to, to any of you at all. It just, it's one of those, if I had a bottle of whiskey and I was lying in the middle of a cornfield and, and it was just perfect blue sky above me and Lost in the Dream was playing, that would be a very good way to spend an afternoon. That's really. I've seen. I've seen a review of it. I've only heard a couple of tracks of it. I saw this lovely review in it that it said it's um, "Lost in the Dream" continues down the slave ambient route, uh, bridging polar opposite strains of 1980s rock, named the tremulous haze of late era Spacemen Three and the sort of flyover state Americana anthems used to sell pickup trucks. I think that's brilliant. So um, you know, it sounds spot on. Oh, it, it is. It's it's not hard. It's not heavy. Um, you can you can put it into a petty a Tom Petty, Bob Dylan, even Bob yeah. Seger kind of category as well, and there are definite Springsteen influences uh, in there. But it's just there's just something about it, and and they released at the back end of last year an album uh, called Live Drugs, uh, which sounds like one gig, but it's taken from quite a few different concerts, and that is as good a live album as I've heard in many a long long year as well. I, I, I love Lost in the Dream. It is, it is just sensational. So that, that's the first one. Um, okay. <laughs> that's the first one on there. And um, Appetite for Destruction has made the top 10. It has to make the top 10 mm-hmm. because this, yeah. this, this was Guns N' Roses. And if they'd have stopped at the end of this record, I don't think I would have been unhappy because I think what came <laughs> after Appetite for Destruction never, ever, to me, reach the heights of this album this this is yeah. this is their never mind the bollocks if if that makes sense yeah. you know this is yeah, and i think there are riffs that the pistols would have been proud of in there but it's just a sensational <laughs> 12 tracks of a band that were burning at their very brightest and they weren't going to burn yeah. for long yeah. so catch them when you yeah. can no i completely agree with that yeah we, we what's your favorite track because we, we reviewed this one a few uh, episodes back and all three of us had a different favorite track. So what's yours? So having seen Guns N' Roses a few times, um, there there are a few tracks that send you away from a gig feeling like you have given absolutely everything to that gig and there is nothing left to give. Um, You know, Paradise City is one of those tracks um, and, I, and I absolutely love Paradise City. So I, I think I'd have to put that down there because, once again, I love songs that build into a climax and the end of Paradise City. It's, it's that James Brown moment, isn't it? Someone, someone throw a cloak over me and drag me off. No, I'm going to come back again five or six times. You know, it's just you give everything uh, for that moment. 
uh, and I remember seeing it for the first time at Donington uh, when I saw the, uh, the band were on stage there and I saw them uh, tour. I've seen them t- uh, twice recently. They, they are a shadow of their former self. But the, uh, yeah. the, the the gig at the Olympic Stadium a few years back, that, that was a remarkably good gig for a band at, at that stage. But they weren't the proper Guns N' Roses. And it's, it's interesting. So th- th- this album, November Rain, was meant to be on this album. I'm glad it didn't make this album because it, quite frankly, isn't good enough for Appetite for yeah. Destruction. And, and what yeah. I love... Is, is that you think, oh, Guns N' Roses, they're a band that just got up, played music, didn't really think about it. No, they, they did. It's Guns for the first side. So one to six is, is Guns, and then seven to 12 is Roses. So one to six are about, you know, Guns and the seedy side and drugs, you know, and, and all that. And seven to 12, from My Michelle down to Rocket Queen, they're, they're kind of, they're about women and love. Although my Michelle yeah. is not perhaps the love song that Michelle wanted when <laughs> she asked no. Axel and Slash to write it, you know. Yeah. I've never thought of it like that. But it is. That's exactly how. That, that's, that was the exact yeah. intention of the band. Good God! Will you learn something new every day? Well, do, never do, knew do that. you know what? If, if that is still the case, then there's hope for me yet. If you're still learning something new every day. <laughs> So what's up? What's up to guns? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, I'm glad I've written all this down. Um, okay, Astral Weeks is down there. So, what well, I, I put Astral Weeks in because I think I think there are some albums that you just you just have to reserve for certain times of the day. And if you're going to play Astral Weeks, for heaven's sake, don't put it on before eleven o'clock at night because you just won't get what Van Morrison was trying to achieve. And and that's just an album where once again the music completely washes over you if you believe some stories this was recorded over three sessions if you believe other stories it was really recorded over two because the second session just produced absolutely nothing of uh, of any value and that was a session they tried to do during the day the rest of it was all at night time but cypress avenue um which uh and madame george which are two tracks that that morrison wrote just about places in Belfast where, where he grew up. Cypress Avenue was like a well-to-do area and he, he'd sit and look at Cypress Avenue and imagine what would go on there. And it was an area that you know, he didn't come from, but he, he kind of thought, well, what, 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 what happens there that doesn't happen in my life? You know, and, and it's a stream of consciousness that doesn't necessarily make much sense. It is, it's a rock folk, if you want to call it rock folk. It's rock folk, jazz, mm-hmm. blues. It's a jam in a session with musicians who were absolutely in the right moment together at the right time. It was done under a huge amount of pressure uh, to, to get something out. Uh, Morrison had got out of his uh, previous contract and he had to do this for the new label and a lot of stuff going on outside of making music that, that, that would have affected a lot of people. But he just produced something that wasn't what we'd heard from Van Morrison before, but what Van Morrison wanted to put out. And, and it contains Sweet Thing, which I just think is one of the most gorgeous tunes uh, ever written. And, and I, can't, I can't help but just feel a glow every time I hear that song. In the same way, a lot of people think the way young lovers do shouldn't be on the album. It doesn't really fit with everything else. But that is a track that you, you can't not move your arms to. It's just, it's a chaotic piece of music. But it just fits in that three minutes and 18 seconds. And I, I love Astral Weeks, but like I said, don't put it on during the day because you just wouldn't. It's just not right. Some things ha- have to happen late at night. And Astral Weeks is one of those albums. And then 
Yeah, your, ne- your next one, I think, is, is another more modern one. Is that right? Uh, yeah, uh, 2014, I think this came out. Jason Isbell in Southeastern. Jason Isbell was a member of the Drive-By Truckers for a few years, and, and they, they released um, some very good tunes with, with Isbell as a guitarist, um, Outfit, and uh, Never Gonna Change, um, Goddamn Lonely Love, just oh, brilliant, brilliant pieces of music. But he, he was kind of wild uh, to the extent that they threw him out of the band um, because he just, he got drunk a lot. And, uh, and when I say a lot, he, he basically did, it's a bit like Aerosmith, really. He lost many years of his life and uh, through drink and just excess and taking things too far. And uh, he hooked up with uh, a musician called Amanda Shires and, and fell in love. And Amanda Shires said, you've got to go to rehab, um, otherwise that's it. And you've got to get yourself straight. So he did. And when he came out of rehab, he released an album called Southeastern. Now, the, the, t- uh, the first track on it is a track called Cover Me Up, which is um, it's a startlingly personal admission of his feelings towards the woman who eventually became his, his, his wife and how she got him through and how she was the one that he was doing it for and wanted to do it for because this was now the most important thing in his life. And, and he wanted to write a song that paid tribute to the way that she saved him. Uh, basically it's a haunting track and i'm amazed that he can perform it uh, in the way that he does without bursting into tears uh, and i've seen isbel many many times uh, record this in fact i saw i saw jason isbel at st pancras old church in in london uh, when he was promoting southeastern and it was i don't know if you've ever been to st pancras old church for a gig it, it is it is a church and you sit in the pews and he stood there on the altar and it was just him and a guitar and there were barely any lights on. It was all candle lit and it was the middle of summer. It was the hottest bloody night uh, in, in, in King's Cross. But there was not a murmur from from the people that were there. And, and it was absolutely packed. You could barely move in there. And and he just played a, a brand of, of Americana, a uh, slight tinge of country with that. Um, he comes from Muscle Shoals in Alabama, uh, so his music lends itself to a country style, but he's not a country singer. And he just he, he showcased this album, Cover Me Up, is, is stunning. Travelling Alone is a track there where he's just basically, he wants someone to share his life with. Elephant is, is an amazing piece of music, um, lyrically as well, about uh, well, two old friends, two bar friends, one of whom is dying of cancer, and it's that how do you keep that friendship going? How are you there supporting that other person without mentioning the cancer that is eventually going to kill you? And um, that, that's, that's a really, that's a serious song. That is Flying Over wow. Water. Um, songs that she sang in the shower where uh, a man remembers the songs that his other half used to sing while she was taking a shower and he knows that it's, he's never going to hear them again because it was an abusive relationship and he was the abuser and he's not the first time he's done it in his life. Um, Yvette uh, is a track that ends really badly as well. This is this is not necessarily a happy album, but it's an album uh, written by a man who is coming to terms with the way his life is, who once again hasn't got the answers to how his life is going to pan out, but uh, knows that this is where he's at at the moment and the answers will come eventually. Yeah. I, I adore good lyricists. I, I, I really do. And I think most of my top 10 um, 
features some, some very good lyricists. There, there are songs to dance around your bedroom in your underpants to, and there are songs that you have to put a suit on. I, I, once again, no one's quite writing music like, like Jason Isbell at the moment. He really isn't. Yeah. Should we go on to Queen, Night at the Opera? Now, this was the most expensive album ever made at the time that it was made, which is a bit like saying Phil Parks was once the most expensive goalkeeper uh, in world football. <laughs> I mean, he was, but West Ham paid yeah. 600000 for him. And uh, I don't know who the most expensive is at the moment, but Alisson was like $63 million when he went to Liverpool. Um, it, it costs somewhere in the region of £338,000 in today's money. Uh, it was about forty grand, I think, uh, back in the day. And this was Queen showing what Queen could really do if they were let loose with a, uh, a, a 24 multi-track and uh, enough time to lay overdubs into to a studio. A Night at the Opera is every single bit of that band's talents. And <laughs> yes, it has Bohemian Rhapsody on it. And Bohemian Rhapsody does rather tend to dominate people's reviews. But the Prophet song is, is an amazing piece of, of operatic rock. Uh, 39 is a wonderful folky tune that George Michael used to busk to. I'm in love with my car is actually uh, is not as bad as the title might suggest and, and features an Alfa Romeo uh, engine at the end of it. Um, I just thought I'd throw that in because uh, people like to know that sort of rubbish. Um, uh, Death on Two Legs. Uh, was written about their, their, their former manager. And it's just bloody nasty. Love of My Life is a beautiful piece of music. There, there is some great tracks on A Night at the Opera. And as I mentioned, it was the first record I ever got, and I still play it today. You're listening to the Enter Sad Men podcast. We're talking loud. Maiden's Number of the Beast. Now, I, I don't know where you stand on, on Maiden, but I, I loved Number of the Beast. I, I, I thought this this was... This was just the the dogs, wasn't it? When, when I got this, In, Invaders could have been a better opening track, but once again, start slow, build up to a crescendo. Uh, Children of the Damned is just ah oh, yeah. You you, you you notice the difference between Diano and Dickinson and tracks like Children of the Damned. Um, Twenty two yeah. Acacia Avenue. It's, it's not not a particularly pleasant song, uh, to be honest, but it's it. It's got a good maiden beat, and I I love that. And 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 then we get to the four that that you know five down to eight. Number of the beast, run to the hills. My God, commercial heavy metal they might be, but they're still a staple of any Iron Maiden set uh, even to this day. Yeah. Uh, Gangland is is a is a sensational track that's been overlooked, I think, by a lot of Maiden fans for many years. And hallowed be thy name. You know, my mate Martin wanted mm. to be buried to that. You know, we used to used to go to Donington with my mate Martin. I'm like, really? Hello, be that name? Okay, um, but it's it's just seven minutes of of vintage Maiden, and and this this is a band. They're a bit heavy metal, Marmite. Some people like them, some people don't. I, I personally think that they're that without Maiden, a lot of bands wouldn't have gone on to be the bands they are too, and and they they have been a great export for British music for many many years. I, I I love Number of the Beast uh, from the first moment I played it, and I still play it regularly today. Oh, I'm with you. I remember being really excited when that came out because obviously, I, I mean, I have a lot of affection for Killers and the mm. debut album, really do. But um, I remember when Number of the Beast was due to come out, and I saved up my pocket money, and um, yeah, I was I was 17, and I, I walked to the record shop, FL Moors, and I bought it, and. <laughs> It was just a massive, massive step up, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. 
you know, Paul Diano, I, 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 I was jogging this morning and, and just before I went, there was a, uh, a maiden track with Paul Diano on it. I think it might have been Killers. I'm not sure. Um, but it, he had a good voice. He really did. But would Maiden have become the band they became had they have stuck with Paul Diano? And I think the answer has to be no on that one. Um, no. no. And, and it's just Dickinson's vocal range. Stunning. Absolutely stunning, uh, that man. Wouldn't it have been great if he'd have got in the British fencing team and won an Olympic medal, you know? <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't that have done, done the cause of heavy metal so much good in this world? <laughs> Well, there was a time when his when his sister was more famous than he was as an international show jumper. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, how the world has changed! How the world has changed. Uh, which brings yeah. us on to my top three, and, and I'm glad to see you're all still awake because <laughs> I can go on a bit about this one. Now, who's the Metallica fan here, or are you all Metallica fans? All of us. Right. All, yeah, we're all we're all paid up members. Good. So who's the one that's going to agree with me and say that Ride the Lightning is the best Metallica album? Um, it's my favourite Metallica album in lots and lots of ways, but I think Master of Puppets is a better one. Really? Why? I think it's more consistent front to back. Okay. But, but um, Steve, Steve and I have a, a lot of affection for Ride the Lightning because it was a bit of a shared experience down in Hastings when we were training. So... Um, yeah, I have a huge amount of affection for Ride the Lightning. But if I had to take one to a desert island, I think it would be... And I'd take Metallica, but like Mark, I've just got an enormous soft spot for, for Lightning. I think it's a stunning album. It just introduced me to the band because I did it the wrong way around. Killamore came after this for me. Um, but I would, take the black, I would take the Black Album. See, the thing is, it introduced you to the band, but I think it introduced Metallica to the world and, and the proper Metallica uh, to the world as well. Yeah. And and I think the confidence that the band had at that stage in their career to, to put this album out with, oh, my Lord, acoustic guitar uh, in, in a thrash mm-hmm. metal album, you know, it j- just showed that they they had the guts and they had the, the just this self-assuredness that what they were doing was actually eventually going to be appreciated by more people that, that didn't like it at all. Um, and also, any band, any album that finishes with an instrumental is always a brave album as well, which I quite like. Um, but I just, it's the way they experimented with this album, the way that they they decided, and and they could quite easily have just gone on with with, with what they'd already been putting out, and we'd have all been very happy. But but they didn't, and and for an album that that was released in '84, and for a band that that have have produced so much good music since the fact that a lot of these tracks are still staples of a Metallica set speaks volumes for me for ride the lighting. It has an energy and a freshness. And yeah, I I agree with you, Mark. It might not have that consistency, maybe that master of puppets did, but it, but what it lacks in that consistency, it makes up for in youthful energy. And I think creeping death and I think fade to black and, and the title track itself and for whom the bell tolls are, are, are four immense pieces of music, especially for yeah. whom the bell tolls, uh, which is not a bell at the start as well. I don't know if you know this. It's an anvil. No. They, no. Couldn't fi- they couldn't find a bell, so um, they got hold of an anvil, and they, they put it on the stairs, <laughs> and, and Lars just smacked the hell out of an anvil instead. <laughs> See, for whom the bell tolls is, um, is, is the track that introduced me to Metallica. That yeah. was what 
Tommy Vance played mm. on the Friday Rock Show. That was the first mm. time I'd ever heard of it. And I remember I went straight out and bought the album. Yeah. I thought it was absolutely amazing. It is one of those, isn't it? Yeah. Fade, Fade to Black is, is the track that introduced me. It, it's, it, is that, it is that album. It's, yeah. And, and, and you know, I, I'm, I'm, I like to read up on albums. I like to read up on bands. Um, but I, I reserve that judgment when it comes to Fade to Black because it, it's such a gorgeous piece of music and it, and it is a very deep and dark piece of music. But the fact that he was writing it about losing an amp, just it, it, it rather detracts, I think, from the lyrics that, that came after it. <laughs> I, I know he loved that amp. I know they love that amp, but for heaven's sake, you know? <laughs> <laughs> there are things to get yeah, suicidal I, I about. That's not one of them. Um, right. Oh, oh. I've just realised we've kind of got into my top three. Um, but uh, where I've, where I've written it down, I've actually, yeah, we're, we're not into the top three at all because there was a there's a Springsteen album that didn't quite make the top three, and that's Darkness on the Edge of Town. And there are a lot of Springsteen fans out there that might think, why is that not in your top three? And it's purely and simply because uh, I prefer the other one. Um, I'm, I'm a, a hopeless optimist, and and I, you know, I dream of better days. We all dream of better days, and and I just there's something in Born to Run that that, that strikes a chord with me in every single track. And Darkness on the Edge of Town, um, uh, no, I love, and and it's a very good introduction uh, to to Springsteen. Um, it is an album where that he wrote after a long, protracted, drawn-out legal battle with his former manager that basically prevented him from recording any music uh, for, a, for a couple of years. So there was Born to Run, and it was a big hiatus, and then Darkness on the Edge of Town came out, and, and it's a more grown-up Springsteen. It's uh, Steve Van Zandt uh, came on board as one of the producers, along with John Landau, and that uh, introduced a more guitar-orientated sound to, to the, the, the album itself, from Born to Run, which I don't think is a, a bad thing. And it's it's an album that many Bruce Springsteen fans think is his best work. Badlands is, is, a, is a corking opening track that, you know, like I say, I tried not to sing it once in concert and I, I lasted about two seconds on that one. You just can't help it. Adam Raised a Cane is his first song he ever wrote about his relationship uh, with his father. Uh, Candy's Room, uh, you know, what goes on in Candy's Room from the perspective of, of a man who just wants to get in there. Racing in the Street, which I thought for many years was the like the sister track to, to Thunder Road, but now I'm not quite so yeah. sure. Um, it, it, it isn't quite uh, the sister track, but you, you kind of... You kind of think it should be because Thunder Road is all about optimism and hope for the future and racing in the street is what happens when some of those dreams don't quite go the way that, that you once expected. And that's the whole theme, really, of darkness uh, on the edge of town. The Promised Land is uh, is a wonderful tune. Uh, it really is. Um, just searching for something that is out there. Once again, that, you know, this is what I'm stuck with, but there's got to be something better. But for the time being, I'm stuck with this. Uh, Factory was just about the hopelessness of, of a lot of people's nine to fives. And there were many Springsteen songs uh, like that. Um, and, and Darkness on the Edge of Town itself. This is every single one of these songs was, was picked from I don't know, roughly 40 tunes that he could have put 
on the album at the time. Um, you know, tracks like Because the Night, he wrote around that time, gave it away uh, to, to Patti Smith. Mm-hmm. There were other tracks that, that, that just didn't get a look in on this album because he decided they weren't quite good enough. Born in the USA, I think, could have gone on this album as well. He, he started writing that round about this time. That obviously got delayed a bit. Nebraska came after this and then, then Born in the USA itself. Um, it, it's, it's a great introduction to Springsteen. Um, I love it, especially racing in the street and, and that Roy Bitten coda at the end of it uh, kind of smacks a bit of Derek and the Domino's Layla in the, the, the song changes. But but the way Roy Bitten approaches that piano coda is, is like nothing else. Uh, I went to see Springsteen once in Hyde Park and the person I was with <laughs> turned to me and said uh, at the end of the track went, all oh, right, what was the first track uh, he played before that piano bit? I saw it. It's all racing in the street. It's the same song. Oh, no, no, it's a completely different song, isn't it? No, no, no. That is the one tune. It sounds like two. It, it could easily be two. And it's once again a, um, an instrumental that could just go on forever. Um, so Darkness on the Edge of Town. Uh, there's a lot I could say about that, but I'm going to say a bit more about Born to Runners instead. After The Black Crows, The Southern Harmony, mm. and Musical Companion. Now, here's a band. My God, here's a band. The Black Crows could have been the biggest thing on the planet. And round about the time of the Southern Harmony and Musical Companion, everything was heading that way. But uh, by a mixture of, of, of the greed of the brothers, the, the drug taking that was rife throughout the band, the, 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 the fight for control that was going on and, and just several really bad decisions they didn't become the band that they should have done. But the Southern Harmony and Musical Companion is just the Black Crow's legacy to a great, great album that the world should enjoy. And and I, I one of the things I discovered in lockdown was my, my appreciation and love of the Black Crows. I, I was meant to go and see them last year to celebrate my 50th birthday in Austin two days before I turned 50. Uh, and sadly, uh, because of the pandemic, that didn't happen. But, you know, it's been rescheduled. We might get there this year. You never know. But, you know, Sting Me, Remedy, hard rocking tracks to open uh, an album. Thorn in My Pride, uh, Bad Luck, Blue Eyes, Goodbye, and sometimes Salvation. Just testing the range of Chris Robinson's uh, voice to the extreme. And he, and he absolutely delivers. Hotel Illness, absolutely love that, you know. Um, it's... <laughs> I think it's, it's a song, I think, about touring and, and how it just becomes a bit crappy after a while. Um, uh, no Speak, No Slave, Black Moon Creeping, uh, uh, absolute worthy tracks, but My Morning Song, what a tune uh, that is as well. And even a Bob Marley cover at the end cannot, for me, dampen this album. It is The Black Crows at their peak, a record that took eight days, I think it was, to, to record uh, in L.A., round about the time of the, of the L.A. riots, which kind of get a mention in the lyrics of Sting Me. But I, I don't know what, where you guys stand with the Black Crows. They've been accused of ripping off the stones of the faces. Yeah, so what? I thought they were brilliant. Uh, I think it's an um, incredible album. One of the best produced albums ever made. Mm. It's so clear, so well balanced. You can hear absolutely everything on it. And it was it, this was the album that Mark Ford came in as well, wasn't it, on, on guitar, which I thought really lent quite a lot uh, to, to the Black Crows. And they, they just, every single compartment of that band, every single area was covered brilliantly by the people in those roles. And if they'd yeah. have just realised it at the time 
and Chris Robinson hadn't, you know, blown a hundred grand a year on weed as he as he once claimed to do and disappeared up his own backside in the way that he could frequently. If they'd have just if they could have just hung on to what this album represented, my God, they could have been so much better. And yeah, you know, the the Black Crows were the band. You know, they they played with Jimmy Page on a tour as a wonderful live at the Greek album that they released with him. Jimmy Page yeah, offered, yeah. he offered to write songs with the Black Crows and help them with their next album after that live at the Greek. This was Jimmy Page in massive pain uh, with his back at the time as well. And Rich Robinson turned him down, said, no, it's all right. We don't need your help. How can a band turn down Jimmy Page? Oh, that's just arrogance in the extreme. Sure. <laughs> it just, it, just it, it staggers me. There's, um, there's a wonderful book, actually, that uh, Steve Gorman, uh, the, the longtime drummer with the Crows, wrote that explains a lot of what went on behind the scenes. It, it's worth it. It took me about four days to read because I couldn't put it down. Because just when you think mm. that they've reached the limits of their arrogantness, their their stupidity, nope, nope, they come back for more. Unbelievable. So all of those are amazing. Listening to you talk about them, there's so so much passion in there. So the number one album, Crofty, has to be absolutely huge. Well, it is for me. Uh, yeah. So you got to you got to understand the context behind this album a little bit as well. Springsteen had released two albums, uh, Greetings from Asbury Park and, and The Wild, The Innocent, The E Street Shuffle, uh, which had received a lot of critical acclaim, but had, um, had kind of bombed in the record shops and had sold, but not really sold that well. So he was basically told by Columbia, you're on a three album deal, get it right next time or you're out, mate. And as a 24 year old young man who lived his life to get to this point, this was now the point of no return. You either come up with something that's incredible or, or you go back to doing what you were doing before, playing in bars or, or, or whatever. And to tie into that, the, the, the record label also wanted a single before the album. So he had to come out with, with, with a single that sold. And that single w- w- was Born to Run, which could easily have opened up this album, uh, but it didn't. He chose instead uh, to open up with, with, with Thunder Road. Now, I think Thunder Road is is the most beautiful song ever written. I I, I absolutely uh, adore it, and and the images that the whole album is full of, of of images that Springsteen set to lyrics and 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 set to music. But uh, that screen door slamming and Mary's dress swaying and you know dancing across the porch to come out. To, to, to this man, you know, um, who sat there in his car, Roy Orbison, singing for the lonely. Hey, that's me and I want you only. You know, you, you don't write lyrics like that twice. You, you, you write it once and you hope that you write it with the right riff and the right opening to bring people in. And Thunder Road to me is just about trying to invite someone on a journey and setting out on that journey and, you know, just not accepting what you've got. Leave it all behind. Take a risk. Go and do it. I, I you know, was a theatre publicity officer once upon a time in my life, and someone gave me a one-month contract to go and work in the BBC, and I went for it and didn't think twice about it. Sometimes you've got to take a risk in life, and that's what Thunder Road is all about um, to me. It's just... It's just the most beautiful piece of music, as I said. And it gets even more beautiful when you hear some of the acoustic versions that Springsteen has recorded uh, over the years as well. 
it is also the start of an album where, where the band are really finding its feet. Boom Boom Carter and David Sanctius left the band after the Wild, the Innocent, the East Street Shuffle. So drums and piano, gone. They wanted to form uh, a jazz ensemble instead. Jazz ensembles never work out. Our Spinal Tap, you know, someone should have given them a piece of advice on that one. But um, they left. So in came Max Weinberg and in came Roy Bitten. And Roy Bitten's piano um, helps, you know, style this album uh, for me as well. Thunder Road, do you want to take a chance uh, on us and on life? Yeah, and if you do want to take a chance, here it is. It's waiting for you, but it might cost you, but you've got to take that chance. So I, I absolutely loved it. And there's, there's a, a line in there as well about, you know, um, maybe we ain't that young anymore, which, bearing in mind, Springsteen was 24. Vietnam War had just ended. Young people's minds had been changed by the Vietnam War. People were a lot more serious in, 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 at that time, at that age. And, and Thunder Road just just encapsulates a, an era and a request. It's a request song, isn't it? Come with me. Things will be okay. Um, we're going to get to 10th Avenue Freeze Out, which is the story of the band. It's, it's, uh, it's basically all about how the E Street Band got together. And, and the last verse is the important one in that because the change was made uptown and the big man joined the band. And, you know, in comes Clarence Clemens. And there's a great story about the night that uh, Clemens joined the band, a windy night. And, in burst the biggest man you've ever seen into a bar where Springsteen and the E Street Band were, were, were playing. And from that moment on, both Springsteen and, and Clemens both talk about how they knew at the first meeting that this was going to be something special, that they were going to go and do things together. Um, the front cover of Born to Run has Springsteen leaning on Clarence Clemens' shoulder. You can't see it's Clemens until you open up uh, the album. Yes, yeah, so it was a gate, gatefold, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And it's it's an amazing you think about it, this album came out in seventy five you know and and Clements obviously been playing with the band for for many years but here was a celebration you know of Springsteen the the white rock star and Clemens the the the, the black horn man you know not just as best friends but as, as Scooter and the big man they, 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 these were souls that were intertwined you know, coming from a part of the country that suffered immensely with the race riots in Asbury Park uh, in the, the late 60s, early 70s, but just joining forces together, you know, for, for Scooter and the big man to bust the city in half. And, and they did. They went on and they just, um, it's, it's, it, it, you read up about this. It's, um, they talk about when they first got together and, and, and how they, they just knew that there was a real special relationship. And, uh, you know, Clemens says that my girlfriend called me gay and, and his girlfriend called him gay because of the way that we never separated for two weeks after we first got together. And he said the music brought us together. It was real. It felt like everything we both wanted to say and the way we wanted to say it. And, and we fit like a, a hand in glove. And if you ever, ever had the pleasure of seeing Springsteen and Clemens on stage together, you, you saw that, you know, every single night. Uh, talking of nights... Night is the third track on it. it. It's it's another, it's another song about you know uh, your, your humdrum day to day life. You know you, you work all day and you survive to the night, and then the night everything happens. Magic happens uh, in the night. Backstreets is a song uh, about friendship. 
It's about living in a small town where New York is just a, a few miles away, but you've got the obscurity of the small town to retreat to and the friendships that are there and the way that you can live your life. And uh, in in that kind of a place, it, it leans a bit on, on uh, Madame George, on Morris, Van Morrison's Astral Weeks as well. Um, there's, there's a repeated chart of in the back street on, on uh, Madame George, and that comes through then into back streets, which... Um, I think I think it's a very intense record uh, on Born to Run. Uh, Born to Run itself is just this amazing. It's an amazing single to release to show what you can do, and it's a single that he wouldn't have released had David Sanctus and Ernest Boom Boom Carter stayed with the band. This this is very much Max Weinberg's um, coming to the fore as well. You know, that, that snare drum at the start, listen to it over and over again, and then listen to Locomotion by Little Lever, and it's pretty much the same snare drum on there. It's that wall of sound that he was trying to create, that Phil Spector wall of sound, mm. but it's different to Spector's wall of sound because you can hear every instrument that's being played. Jimmy Iovine, um, uh, the, the, trying to mix this thing and engineer this thing, was tearing his hair out, trying to fit all the instruments in, but did a great job. And he said that one of the reasons he could engineer it properly is that if you ever felt that he needed to return back to something, Roy Bitton's piano was in the background, driving things forward as well. The guitar riffs are just immense on it. Springsteen's vocals really come to the fore and, and just some of the, the most classic lyrics come out on this one. Yeah. The highways jam with broken heroes on a last chance power drive. And that, that just sounds like a traffic report I want to hear, quite frankly. Um, she's the one. Um, that was included on the album because of the Clarence Clemens saxophone solo uh, that Bruce Springsteen wanted uh, to hear Clarence play on the album and he fought for that and it's just Clarence Clemens was a big man but he had a big sound as well and you'll hear that yeah. again in a moment after after meeting across the river which is a wonderful it's it's like a, a novella uh, basically about this small time hoodlum gangster who's got a big payday coming once again it's hopes it's optimism that shines through yeah things might have gone really crappy in in, in the past but this time it's the real deal, you know, and, you know, it, it's just a, a wonderful evocative, makes me think of the Sopranos every time I hear it, uh, quite frankly. But it's, it's small time hoodlands in New Jersey going into town to uh, to pick up the big deal. And it segues. And, and, and by the way, you know, the use of piano and, and a horn sound that Steve Van Zandt arranged the horn sound in that. He'd been working with Southside Johnny doing that for many years, but he arranged this horn sound. Um, around a piano that Springsteen got after just having lunch with Roy Bitton and Bitton just playing a, a few chords to him. Incredible. Um, and then that segues into Jungle Land. And, and if Rodgers and Hammerstein hadn't have written West Side Story, Springsteen would have done it for them with this. It's, it's <laughs> just, it is, if you ever want to listen to nine and a half minutes of, of, of just scene setting, uh, what could be going on in New York City on any given night? Just listen to Jungle mm. Land. It's that that is is one of the greatest pieces of music. Um, I love I love Jungle Land. I love Thunder Road more. The sax solo at the end uh, that Clarence Clements uh, came up with that sax solo took sixteen hours straight of work in the studio to try and find the sax solo they wanted and. Clemens didn't hear how it turned out until the album was released because they went straight from that that recording session to start a tour 
the very next day. And Clemens never heard uh, the fruits of his labours until uh, he heard the finished piece uh, on the album itself, which I find quite incredible that he didn't want to uh, hear it, quite frankly. But Born to Run took a long time to make and Springsteen agonised it over it and he, he, he tortured himself over it. But in the end, he produced a piece of music that, well, 1975, so it was about 46 years later, still sounds as fresh today as it did back then. I, I cannot recommend this album highly enough. Well, we're about to talk about Def Leppard's um, debut and they knocked that fucker out in two weeks. So. <laughs> well, there's two ways of doing it, isn't there? You know, um, Ride the Lightning didn't take long to do. Um, Southern Harmony Musical Companion didn't take that long to do. Born to Run more than made up for that. I'm sorry I go on about it quite a bit, but it's just... I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, Crofty. I know at the start you reprimanded me and I thought, yeah, yeah, whatever. I'll, I'll listen to it somewhere down the line. I've just downloaded it on Spotify, Born to Run. So there you go. Your passion's got to me. Good Hello. man. Good man, and but the thing is, honestly, I, and I warn you now: once you start getting into Springsteen, you'll never stop. Do you think? <laughs> do you think Border Run's good? Oh, there's, 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 there's more out there. Trust me. So, I have got a, a question though. Yeah. Crofty, which is, you know, I'm a massive ACDC fan. Rich is a massive Rush fan. Steve's a massive Van Halen fan. You're obviously a massive Springsteen fan. Yeah. I can look back at ACDC's back catalogue and go. Yeah, there's one on there that is actually just a bit of a stinker, and that that's stiff up a lip. I think Richard probably can't find a stinker for Rush, but you can find probably find oh, one. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah Caress of Steel was a, definitely a misstep. Yeah, and and you know Steve, well, he does he won't countenance anything that has um, that has Sammy Hagar in it. So you know, there you go. <laughs> um, is there is there a bad Springsteen album? Uh, there are less good Springsteen albums. Uh, is there a bad Springsteen album? Um, High Hopes was a bit of a mishmash, but there, the trouble with High Hopes is it's got uh, not only has it got American Skin in it, which um, is a song that uh, is a song that he debuted in New York City when he played it live in 2000 that rather criticised the actions of the, uh, the New York police at the time and he got booed for it um, and, and worse by the, uh, by the police but it's a, it's a sensational piece of music and it's also got the electric version of The Ghost of Tom Joad which is worth buying the album for because Tom Morello fits in with the E Street Band like there's no tomorrow. Uh, Wrecking Ball you could say is not one of his best but once again there are some stunning tracks on it not least Land of Hope and Dreams uh, which I absolutely adore I'd say Working on a Dream doesn't really hit the mark for me. Um, that's the album he released when he played the, uh, the Super Bowl year in 2009. So you would have heard Working on a Dream at the Super Bowl, which is a shame they had to promote that because it's not a great tune. It also has a track on it called Queen of the Supermarket, which was an ode to a checkout girl. Um, you know, there's some really cute girls, I'm sure, um, that work in supermarkets. But if I was Springsteen, I'd find something better to write about. But it, <laughs> but it does feature the wrestler at the last carnival. Last carnival was a tribute song to Danny Federici, who died and passed away sadly with melanoma. And the wrestler comes from that film and is is a beautiful piece of music. There are no stinkers. There's, there there are no stinkers when it comes to Springsteen albums, um, but there are less good. But when when you like I said when you, when you've released 340 individual pieces of music that you have written over the years and don't forget he's, he's, he's released stuff and then just given it to other people as well um yeah. was it fire went to the pointer sisters uh, because the night the patty smith hungry hearts do you know who hungry heart was originally going to be recorded by before john landau his manager said don't be so stupid save that for yourself 
That was on the river, wasn't it? It was on um, the river. Hmm. He wanted yeah. to, um, he, go on. No, it wasn't. Uh, he go wanted on. to give it to he wanted to give it to the Ramones. <laughs> you imagine <laughs> the Ramones doing Hungry Heart. What a track that would have been. Well, listen, this has been an absolute joy and um, really appreciate you giving up the time. No. Um, your passion has been absolutely um, beyond doubt. Uh, every drop of love that you have for all of those albums <laughs> has uh, oozed out all over this podcast. Oh, so, it's nice to talk about really, it, to be fair. It really is lovely to talk music for a change with people who actually don't want to shut me up. Because most of the time well, when, I, when I talk about Springsteen, yeah. people want to shut me up. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Come back anytime. Oh, right. anytime. <laughs> that sounds like a properly good idea. Tell you what, next time you introduce me to three albums that I don't know. It's a deal. Done. It's a deal. It's a deal. Listen, thanks very much, mate. Pleasure. Really appreciate it. Pleasure, guys. Great to meet you. Um, cheers, Crofty. And yeah. you. Thanks a lot.